0: Lizzie Hirschberger was born into the Schwartzentruber sect of a Minnesota Amish community. The sect, known for being stricter than other Amish communities, wore their conservative lifestyle like a badge of honor against the backdrop of the so-called English or modern world of the 1970s and 80s. Never feeling like she fit in, Lizzie lived her childhood and adolescent years as a family scapegoat of sorts often being the target of the anger from others in her community and in her family, and rumored to have been the illegitimate daughter of one of her mother's affairs. In many ways, Lizzie's upbringing was typical in the cloistered Amish community, with endless chores and other forms of humble living, living that shunned the conveniences of the contemporary world being the primary focus of her life. It was at a very young age that Lizzie was first sexually victimized by her uncle, after being lured into the back corner of the family barn. At age 14, Lizzie's education stopped and she went to work, as many young Amish girls did, for another household as a live-in maid and helper. Here, Lizzie's victimization evolved as she was groomed and abused by the man she worked for. At the time, even though the abuse was discovered by the man's wife, Lizzie was blamed, labeled as the initiator, and again victimized by her community. The abuse pushed Lizzie to jump the fence, an Amish term for leaving the community to live in modern society. As the Schwartzentruber Amish had no trial period for their youth to experience the outside world as some others do, Lizzie was completely unaware of what waited for her outside of the community she was raised in. Her attempt to break free from her home was short-lived, however, and she eventually returned. But her exposure to the outside world and her potential to live the life she wanted to live haunted her. She continued to collect pieces of the outside world, such as garage sale clothing, as a way of maintaining a sense of herself amidst her unhappiness with the Amish life that continued to be forced on her. With the support of her strongest ally, her little sister, Lizzie finally broke free from her strict religious upbringing and left the Amish community for good. Her story was able to build a solid case against one of her abusers who was officially arrested and charged with sexual assault. The experience recounted in her memoir, Behind Blue Curtains, a true crime memoir of an Amish woman's survival, escape, and pursuit of justice was written with the help of trauma-informed writer and victim advocate, Molly Maeve Egan. Molly, whose personal experience with sexual trauma and journalistic ability helped Lizzie find her voice to tell her story and helped confront the larger issue of sexual abuse within the tightly knit Amish community, a place where stories like Lizzie's are common but often unreported and unheard. Molly Maeve Egan's own personal story and her experience working with Lizzie Hirschberger has given her a unique perspective on how some cloistered communities like the and Amish can deliberately bury stories like Lizzie's, exerting pressure on victims and forcing them to suffer in silence. Molly continued to advocate for Lizzie, even after Lizzie's personal safety was threatened by members of the Schwartz and community as they attempted to smear Lizzie's reputation and even make threats against her life. This only served to cement Lizzie and Molly's determination to share this powerful story with the world. This episode... Is an interview with trauma informed writer Molly Maeve Egan about her work with author Lizzie Hirschberger on the book Behind Blue Curtains. <laughs> We are so honored to have you with us for this episode. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. So could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work?
1: Sure. I am a trauma-informed writer, and I've been writing all my life. And so my evolution as a ghost writer came about largely as a result of this book, Behind Blue Curtains. I originally was hired to edit some of her own writing. And Lizzie Hershberger realized she had a much larger story to tell. And that's when I took over the writing. And so, in general, I am a memoir coach, I help with blogs and articles about anything and everything trauma-informed, I've helped people with screenplays and erotica, and um, I'm working on my own book about surviving the mental health system here in the United States as a larger survivor of complex post-traumatic stress disorder which is often a result of sexual abuse in childhood.
0: Well, and I I noticed from your website that you also help survivors write um, victim impact statements uh, for court or things like that.
1: Thank you for bringing that up. So that also came about as a result of working with Lizzie on this book. She decided to come forward against her abuser about a third of the way into us working together and I flew out to Minnesota for the sentencing and actually met Lizzie in person for the first time and it was then that we realized she had an opportunity to write a very powerful impact statement that would affect the outcome of the case. And so in writing that victim impact statement, I found a passion for channeling my own anger, my own desire for justice. And I found that I really had a talent to put these survivors' words into a language that they might not be able to because they don't have the skills. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And I think it's so important, you know, and and I think that that's kind of a piece of surviving sexual abuse. If the perpetrator is brought to justice that people don't always think about is that moment in court where they're able to actually tell their story. And the fact that you're able to help people through that process is just, I mean, that's so commendable and and, and such a needed area. So, so that was um, so interesting to see that on your, on your website.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. The the work that you do sounds very fulfilling in that sense. Uh forgive me if I didn't if I didn't catch this, but when you say trauma informed, does this mean that you that you sort of derive uh inspiration from your own experiences?
1: Yes. So I am a survivor of childhood trauma and also sexual grooming at a young age. Um I wanted to write my own victim impact statement for a long time, one of the men who I encountered with James Toback, who over 400 women came forward against him, although he's never been brought to justice. And so, you know, when you're a survivor of abuse like that, and it's not resolved at the time... And of course, back then, when I was growing up, I'm 48 now, there really was no language to talk about sexual assault. And so it's been a lifelong journey for me to really understand writing about these issues, not only from a survivor's perspective, but from an empowered perspective, where we understand how early childhood trauma really affects all of these things. And that's mostly sexual abuse. And it's so rampant, especially in these communities that we wrote about.
2: Yeah, I think I read also the term on your website advocacy writing. Is is was that on your website? I believe that's where I saw it.
1: Yes, yeah, so One of the things that I've done is worked with a lot of women from a lot of communities that may not feel they have a voice because of education or opportunity. And they have such important stories to tell. For example, I was working with a young woman who's a survivor of the U.S. foster system where there's a lot of trafficking. And she really just doesn't have the language to advocate for herself she has the you know mental capacity she has everything inside for it to come out but sometimes you need an empowered to survivor to sort of translate you know even now i have trouble finding words for how sexual abuse affected me today i feel like i have trouble speaking and that's why i love writing so much because i can finish my sentences And that's something that I think survivors have trouble doing is just being heard.
2: Absolutely. So could you give our listeners a a brief synopsis of the Behind Blue Curtains book and sort of how you became part of the story?
1: Sure. So Lizzie Hirschberger came to me wanting to write a little ebook about what it was like growing up Amish. And she gave me 40,000 words and, you know, it took me a long time to just sort out you know, what the difference between a bonnet and a cap and like this shade of blue curtains and that and what their strange rules were. But when we got to the point where she was 14, I could tell that there was a bigger story. And a lot of things happened at the time. Um, She found the diaries, her mother's diaries and her own diaries from when she was a child. And she suffered a tragedy in her life, and she sort of quit for a while. And then six months later, she called me up and she said, I reported the rapes from when I was 14. And we started talking about that, and the book took a completely different turn. And we wrote this her real story, which was that she was raised very conservative, and sturber Amish, They're not allowed to have an education past eighth grade, no radio, no music, no books, unless they're approved by the church and everything's dictated by the bishops. And this allows for a lot of abuse and protection under the guise of religious freedom. And for the next two years, Lizzie and I really just got to know each other and I got to know her story in such depth. And I went out to meet her and her family and it really turned into the story of her pursuit of justice, not just for herself, but for all of the Amish children she felt she left behind because abuse is so rampant in these communities that you can't really pass an Amish child on the road and not worry, at least for us, because we know that there's serious abuse going on and they're not allowed to talk about it. So the book really became a mission for justice instead of a little ebook about what it was like to grow up Amish. And that's what was so interesting.
0: I would have never guessed that in, in reading the book just because it was so seamless and, and it was kind of this peek into what life is like in that community, but You know, as you said, it really kind of highlighted and illustrated that kind of that sense of guilt, like you were talking about, of being able to get out, being able to escape, feeling torn about, you know, reporting the abuse, which I think is something that is so common for survivors to feel. And then also that sense of guilt because she was able to escape in a sense. And what about all of the children that she left behind? And so, you know, the whole book was just very powerful in that it brought light to all of these issues. And also that it was uh, this mission, like you talked about to protect children going forward. Now people have the opportunity to know what's going on behind those closed doors.
1: Yes, and the great thing is that change is happening. And this case and this story sparked a lot of that. I mean, I work almost full time now with plane survivors, just helping them escape and come forward against abuse. And that's a whole other story. <laughs>
0: I can only separate. imagine. And I wasn't even familiar with that term, the plane, plain people,
1: Plain people. Yes. Yeah. So that encompasses conservative Anabaptists, which Anabaptists pretty much are conservative, but we're talking about. Amish, Mennonite, and other Anabaptists where the women are wearing coverings, where they don't go to school, and where they're completely sheltered. Yeah, it's it's more common than you think.
0: Well, and it just it makes me think, I mean, because they're sort of cloistered in that sense, that I wonder if that's a factor that really allows this abuse to just be perpetuated. You know, people don't have that view. They don't see what's going on.
1: That's exactly right. And so now this has really sparked a movement. We are getting information out into doctor's offices where the reporting actually ends up happening because sometimes they do like to take care of their medical and mental illness problems within the community, but sometimes they're forced to go out to a doctor's office or to you know, a, another store or to the outside world. They call it the English world. And that's where we have an opportunity to educate them that they have other choices.
2: So in terms of Lizzie's victimization, I'm I'm curious, in your opinion, is the fact that the Amish community is generally like a very cloistered sort of community? Was that her biggest hurdle in terms of telling her story? Or do you think there were other big hurdles as well?
1: Yes. Well, what's interesting is Lizzie left this Amish community, but she didn't leave the area. And she also married somebody who was from that community. And in a lot of ways, her life didn't change that much. It changed a lot, but Lizzie didn't go off and become this independent free woman, you know? And people ask, well, why didn't you say what happened in the 30 years? Well, it wasn't that interesting. And Lizzie would say the same thing. You know, she was married and raising children. So she is still facing backlash in that community. Her family did not want her to come forward. She's judged by the churches that they've tried to join since then. And Lizzie is constantly facing gaslighting. And that's why I think she's so brave. And I have so much respect for her because she still gets death threats. And she still gets letters from family members blaming her for things they knew about and didn't know about that they later read in the book. I don't know how she does it. She's a very strong woman today.
0: In the 1970s, in this country, victim blaming, I think, was far more common. I think people have, you know, kind of gotten wise to that. And it doesn't happen as often in maybe mainstream culture. But I was pretty shocked just reading the book and, you know, hearing what you're saying today, just how much blame she took for the abuse that she suffered.
1: And she took that blame when I first heard about it. That's why she didn't realize there was a story to tell. You know, she still thought it was her fault. And a lot of our working together was trying to untangle that belief that it was her fault. They are taught in those communities that if they are assaulted or abused by another child or an adult, that it is the girl's or the woman's fault for not being modest enough. So they're already up against that. You know, they're taught to be seen and not heard. So for me, I was victimized as a child. And I certainly had all the resources around me technically. And I still thought it was my fault. So I can't imagine what women in that kind of community must think when they're actually told that as part of their education.
2: So real quick, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't the Amish known to be pacifists? It, it, it just It seems very strange to me because I, from what I know of the Amish, they are considered pacifists. And th- this idea that Lizzie Hirschberger was getting death threats or is continuing to get death threats from a group that is claiming to be pacifist and essentially portraying themselves to be relatively harmless, it, it really sort of dumbfounded me.
1: Thank you for that. That's what makes it so dangerous is that a lot of the challenges we've come up against is, oh, you know, those are only a few of the plain people who do that, or um, they really are able to convince a larger community that they are pacifists. And maybe some of the more progressive ones, and I'm sure like every human being in the world, like there are some good ones, but they are known for atrocious animal abuse child abuse. In the last couple of years, there have been children who've died at the hands of this church. So in my opinion, it's all an excuse to get out of taxes and accountability and putting in proper sewage and even obeying road rules. You know, you'll see an Amish person bicycling to the store with a three-year-old in a wagon behind them on the road. That's dangerous for everyone. Mm. So even simple things like that, they get away with because they're considered pacifists and sweet and, you know, let them have their little community, but it's very dangerous for the children like any and, cult.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it makes me think of, so I, I actually worked doing uh sex offender treatment for about 10 years. And mm. I haven't done that work in, in several years now because wow. it, it was very challenging work, But rewarding in the sense of that, I mean, if we treat the offenders, then hopefully we're um, reducing the number of victims going forward, right? But what you're talking about, it kind of these attitudes that allowed the abuse to be perpetuated in that community, it makes me think of some of the thinking errors or the cognitive distortions that we address when we're doing sex offender therapy. Yes. And it's things like um, compartmentalization, you know, I do all of these good things. And yeah, so maybe there's this little bad part, but I'm basically a good person. Right. Um, or it's only happening a little bit. Or or it's only certain people, or it's really not that damaging. All right. of this minimization, denial, rationalization. Yeah. And what's interesting is that it sounds like it's on a community level. And, yeah. and so that is just, you know, how do you combat that? That's very
1: difficult. Well, this is a great story you're leading me into, because right now the organization I work with, Never Stand Alone, which I helped found with uh, plane Survivors, We are tackling a facility in Pennsylvania called Whispering Hope. And there are many, many, many facilities like it across the country. And they're unlicensed. They are completely private and self-run by plain self-appointed ministers. And sex offenders from these communities, instead of going to jail, like everyone else, are sent to these facilities where the women and children come on and stay with them, where they're allowed into the community where there's no oversight and where they're only taught the Bible. And there are probably hundreds of sex offenders going through these programs. And A community member recently went to Whispering Hope on her own and had a very long conversation with the self-appointed ministers there. And honestly, they're so ignorant. They say things like, well, this is the way it's always been. And she asked some really good questions. So the next time somebody was being sentenced from that community, we were able to give the judge some information on Whispering Hope. And the judge stopped the proceedings and said, I didn't know any of this. And this man is going to spend some time in jail. And that's what the community is now doing about it is they're not going to allow it anymore. I get really passionate talking about it because it upsets me how many young women and men from these communities, if they're gay, they're sent to these communities. If they've been abused, they're sent to these communities. And that's why it keeps going. The abuse keeps going on and on and on.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I had no idea about that. I mean, and, th- and that's the thing, right? It's not something that is common knowledge. And again, I think just highlights the work that you and Lizzie are doing. It's just so important. We're not talking about like just a few people, right? I mean, how many people live in these communities? You know, is, is this right. something that's endemic? Do you think it's because
1: their fathers have done it, their grandfathers have done it and their great grandfathers have done it. And none of them went to jail because they were all sent back to the community to be fixed by the Bible. And the women aren't supposed to say anything about it. If they are, they're punished. It it was shocking to me, like working with Lizzie on this book and just telling her sometimes, no, that's not normal. You know, (laughs) we have to spend a lot of time just talking about that.
0: Right. That's a good point. I mean, if you grow up with something and you don't have that kind of outside influence, that outside education, and just everybody around you is telling you that either it's okay or that it's your fault or your responsibility, how would you know any different? Right. Um, So I I think that that's a really good point. I I am
2: curious. There was one person that was interesting to me, aside from Lizzie and her sister, but it was her mom. And some yeah. of the high risk behaviors that her mom sort of engaged in sort of took me aback. And I'm, I'm curious, do you think that that is her mom's acting out as a result of having gone through this sort of thing, the same things that her daughter went through?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a touchy subject, because um, we've heard from mom.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. Um,
1: you know, I will say this that the mother was the hardest character to write. And apparently some of it was taken out by the publisher because they were just like, who is this woman? Is this even real? Like we don't understand her at all. And the bottom line is nobody ever will. And I think that's a testament to what can happen when generations of women have gone through something like this. It's, like, what do you do? I mean, her, her mother's behavior was so extreme and incomprehensible and still is to this day. You know, I told Lizzie recently, your mother's just writing the second book. Yeah. You know, um, and like, I understand, you know, when we wrote the scene about her mother singing in the kitchen, I'll fly away. I had compassion for her mother. I can't imagine what her mother's life was like, but I'm so proud of Lizzie for breaking that cycle that's what's so miraculous is that the cycle has been broken. And I can say that because I've visited Lizzie and her children.
0: Well, and, and all the things, all the barriers that she had to overcome to truly escape that were outlined in, in the story. It was just remarkable that she, she made it.
1: Absolutely. And it's remarkable that she, after she escaped physically, that she was able to break free from the prison of her mind. Because when I met her, she was still in that prison. And Lizzie's a different person today it makes me emotional to talk about because I work with a lot of women now who are leaving or have recently left these communities and they're so open and they're so curious and they're so, they wanna help others so much and there's a lot of potential to really change things. So I'm optimistic.
2: It's a world of difference. And, you know, obviously I don't know, Lizzie, but the the pictures that are in the book versus the picture on the back of the book just look like, two completely different people, just the level of strength and sort of confidence that she has in the her picture on the back of the book yeah. versus, you know, the, the very insecure child, essentially, in the other pictures. Yeah. So it's definitely you can tell and you can sense that it's really been a journey for her.
1: It's been incredible to watch. And I would encourage people to go on a similar journey and to get a writing coach or to start writing your story because I've seen miracles happen. And I will say to balance things out that Lizzie told me the other night she was in a bookstore and a woman came in and found out she was the author of this book and broke down crying and thanked her. And she's getting a lot of letters from survivors thanking her and me for writing this book. Um, So it's not all bad.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. That's amazing. I, I am curious to know what your opinion is on a, a, a concept that sort of came out, and I believe it was Tyler Perry, the mm. the movie maker, who, who stated this. Because Lizzie's abuse isn't just localized to one person. This is something that continues to happen to her throughout her adolescence in different ways. From different people. And I was just curious, in terms of that, Tyler Perry had this sort of idea that it was a blood in the water type situation. In other words, that people who are predators who will prey on the vulnerable will sense that about somebody who is wounded, particularly a child. And I was curious, do you find that in your work? Do you find that people who have been abused once will have that sort of experience over and over again? Because other people can sort of sense that this person is especially vulnerable.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up. And I am so glad that Tyler Perry has brought that up. And I've listened to some interviews. You know, I've been trying to talk about this before I even met Lizzie Hirschberger because when I, came about, when I came out about my story of being really uh, stalked and groomed by James Toback, he's somebody who used to stand outside Lincoln Center in Manhattan and look for young girls. And I wrote about it and I wrote about how vulnerable I was that day that he saw me on the street. I was so broken. I was already so insecure and all I wanted was to be seen. And when I tell you that James Toback knew what to look for, I was it because there was blood already was in the water. That blood was in the water and I can still sense it today. It's like a survivor and a predator can smell each other. And I like to think of it as a superpower that I have. And I'm glad that I have it. I'm glad that I can smell their blood in the water, not just my own. And I... Can protect others. I can protect myself. You know, that's something that even if there is blood in the water around me today, there is also blood around in the water around these predators. And an empowered survivor can do something about it. So I'm really glad that you asked that because grooming is something that I think people were not ready to talk about when I came forward. My story was not a story that ended in a violent rape that would have made a big splash in the headlines. So I had to learn about grooming and that there was blood in my own water in order for me to forgive myself and to empower myself today. And and that's what Lizzie's done. And I think that everybody can do that. It's a really hard journey, but it's worth it. And there are people like me and Lizzie here to help. Our information is out there. And I do encourage people who are suffering to reach out. We can help you clean up that blood.
0: Molly, I think that that is such a a great metaphor. And what a great way to take back your power and Mm -hmm. and to kind of use that experience to say, you know what, I see you, I see you predator, and I'm not going to let you do that to me. And I'm going to help other people protect themselves. That is power right there.
1: It is a worthy mission. And despite what's happened to me as a child and what's happened to Lizzie, I think we now understand the power that we have to really change things.
2: I I really appreciate the work that you're doing, Molly. I Thank was, you. yeah, absolutely. I was uh, fascinated by the story. It's an incredibly powerful story. Like uh, Jessica was saying, I read the book probably in a few days and it was hard to put down. It, your presence made it very powerful you know thank you and your your ability to tell a story and so it really came forward
0: what a gift you have to um help people find their voice Like I I keep getting emotional as we are doing this interview, just because that's just amazing. And you know, how many people don't ever think about that, about helping other people to come forward and how healing that can be to be able to tell your story and to have somebody there with you on that journey. And I just thank you. Thank you for for doing what you're doing. I'm I'm honored that we got to got to meet you and to have you on our episode. When it comes to uh, sexual abuse, it hasn't been something that we've spoken very much on our podcast about, um, but it's certainly something that is very close to home for us just in the work that we've done and really trying to um, make some impact in this cycle. And and I do think you're right. I think that things are getting better. I think we're becoming more educated just as a society. We're understanding the dynamics better and we're starting to hold people accountable better. Yeah. It's not perfect, um, but I think that we're all making steps in the right direction. And so hopefully that continues.
1: Yes. And thank you for for giving us the opportunity to, to talk about this.
0: Wow. What an amazing woman. You know, David, this podcast has given us the opportunity to meet and connect with so many interesting people who are doing such great work.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's one of the things I love about doing this podcast.
0: Yeah, it's so inspirational, and I feel so fortunate that we were able to have Molly on this episode. We highly recommend Behind Blue Curtains, and we'll have a link to the book on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. Just as a little FYI, 10% of the book's profits are donated towards support and educational services for Plain People communities. We'll also have a link to Molly Maeve Egan's website, as well as some additional information about her and her advocacy work, so please be sure to check that out. And for all of our Denver-based listeners, as a reminder, we have the Cycle Bar event coming up on Saturday, July 31st at the Southwest Plaza location, where we'll be writing to raise money for Little Man's Legacy, a foundation that provides support to families who've experienced the loss of a child. We would love to see some of our listeners there if you can make it, and it's for a great cause. And also, as a reminder, we are now on Patreon, where we're offering some exclusive content, polls, access to a live Q&A event, and exclusive merchandise. So please check that out. And David, our merch store on our website is now active.
2: Yeah, that's exciting.
0: Yay! So if you want to sport some psychology after dark gear, you can find it there. And as always, thank you all for joining us and for your support. Please keep the emails and messages on Facebook and Instagram coming. We love hearing from you all, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode.
2: Thanks for joining us.
0: The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica Makono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liscus, both provided by Jamendo.